we get to talk to Dougal Lane, who is a, one of the originators, co-originators of the Dark Mountain Project and A School Called Home, and author of a new book that doesn't have a title yet. A new yet. book that doesn't have a title yet. It's coming out with Chelsea Green sometime oh, yeah. in early 2023. Great. So thank you for doing this. Pleasure. I'd like to have you, if you would be willing to, just speak for a moment about the orientation of collapse and the necessity for humans to get our act together quickly and face into losing every illusion that we're holding, not thinking that it's an illusion. And, and then collaborating to cut loose a whole new level of human creativity and collaboration as a joyous possibility. Just If you could just speak into your, your research and orientation in that direction, it would be great. All right. Well, when I wrote the Dark Mountain Manifesto with Paul Kingsnorth, just about 12, 13 years ago now, one of the things we said in the closing lines was, the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop. And it felt like there was a need to make that distinction, to prize those two things apart. Because otherwise, if we mistake the end of the world as we know it for the end of the world full stop, we will do anything, however desperate, however destructive, in the name of saving the world. And what we mean is saving the world as we know it. So there's a need to let go, to give up. People used to say that to us when we'd written the manifesto. They said, you guys are giving up and you're encouraging other people to give up. And they'd say that as if that was a terrible moral failing. And I sat with that quite a lot. And what became clear to me is that giving up is always giving up on something. But sometimes it can feel like giving up on everything. Because until you've done that giving up, you don't know what else there was beyond the story you were carrying, beyond the picture of the world that you had. And there's mixed feelings involved in any of this. So in one, of, one of the members of our long table community at a school called home said to me the other day, you know, it's about widening the aperture of awareness, which I thought was a lovely phrase. But the truth is to widen the aperture of awareness, starting from where most of us are starting from today in countries like Denmark or Sweden, where I live, the UK, where I grew up, North America, starting from these parts of the world, to widen the aperture of awareness is going to be to let in all of the, the horror show stuff that is part of what makes possible the way that we've been living around here lately. And modernity has been very good at outsourcing you know, all of the costs of the ways that we've been living, whilst telling this glorious story of progress in which everybody else is soon going to be living like us here. Everyone else is living in the past, but they will get here soon. It's not true. Everybody's living in the same time, in the same moment. And some of us 
have been living with a lot of the benefits of modernity, and there's a whole lot more people who've been living with most of the costs of it. But those consequences, you know, they're coming home. They're rising in the awareness of lots of people in our societies, partly just because of the speed at which things are unraveling. You use the word collapse, and often we've been primed by Hollywood to look for the big grand event, the end of the world as we know it, announced on the newspaper boards. It doesn't happen like that. It creeps into our lives. It arrives in fits and starts in different places at different speeds. But it's been arriving fast enough that for quite a while now, the ordinary citizen in pretty much any Western country is more likely to feel that young people growing up today will struggle to have the kind of life their parents had than to believe that young people growing up today will have a better life than their parents. So the story of progress has already unraveled in the everyday experience of the majority of the population of most of the Western countries. And uh, what that leaves us with is a lot of stuff to come to terms with, a lot of hurt, a lot of disorientation, a lot of anger. I mean, Vanessa Andriotti, who's one of my um, great inspirations as a friend and collaborator, part of the Gesturing Towards Decolonial Futures Collective. I remember spending time with her in Paris in late 2018 it must have been and it was soon after bolsonaro was elected in brazil where she comes from and she said to me i think it makes a lot of difference whether people feel that they've been cheated of the promises that were made to them by modernity or whether they see that those promises could never have been kept and that it might not even have been a good thing for them to be kept. That distinction between the story which says things have gone badly wrong because you were tricked by those guys, or the story that says this was always going to end this way. And unless we get to the this was always going to end this way story, which allows us to then begin this unraveling, begin the, the sort of bringing into the frame of the stuff that was outside of the aperture of awareness and the tension that we've been encouraged to have within these societies, then we can't get into that process of giving up, of feeling the, the kind of humbling, perhaps humiliation that's involved in this. But also with it comes a bit of a sense of relief bit like a family that's been keeping a secret that everybody knew but no one spoke about and when that's finally spoken it's going to be pain probably going to be tears there's going to be raised voices but there can also be within that uh, a sense of breathing out because so much energy has been locked up in everybody not speaking about that and i think when we started dark mountain part of what we were doing was creating a space where people were welcome to speak about their doubts, their despair, their darknesses, their disillusionment, without feeling judged for that, without feeling alone in that, without there being a rush to action or to answers. It's not to say that there aren't actions worth taking, but we have to 
It's what Biokamalafe says. Uh, the situation is urgent. We need to slow down. We have to slow down. Why do we have to slow down? Because we have to allow ourselves to be changed. If we try to act on this at the level of absorbing information about the trouble we're in, and then coming up with solutions and putting them into action, if we try to do it on that level whilst remaining the people we are, the people we were, the people we thought we were, the people we've been told we were, no good will come of that. It's only if we can go through the, the process, like the costliness of facing everything we've been leaving out of the story, seeing who we become when we really let that knowledge in, not just here, but all the way through. Only then do we have a chance of becoming different people. And maybe that's my way of talking about what you're talking about when you talk about the new culture. Again, Vanessa Andriotti uses this phrase, she talks about presently unimaginable futures. And what that's given me is this sense that the exercises of imagination that we're often invited into with good intentions to try to bring about a different future might be the wrong place to start. Because if we mobilize our imaginations and project outwards into the future to try and envision something and then bring it about, that's not the same thing as you know, letting ourselves be changed to become the people who might be capable of imagining futures worth living for and working for in the times You've entered this territory of allowing ourselves to be changed, or even in, in a better scenario in some ways, like having the intention of going along the path of authentic adulthood initi initiations. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think all the viewers here are, are on that path and are so interested in actually people speaking about it with some kind of authority experience guidelines any kind of any kind of doorways that can be made because it's such a rare topic mm. and so I, I would be really interested to hear how you yourself personally if you're willing to share that and began or encountered the possibility of initiation because it's so foreign to the context of modern culture. It's been banished 6,000 years ago by the culture itself. How have you discovered and how, how were you introduced to that? Right. I suppose that I learned to talk about it in these terms pretty late in the day because, you know, like most of us, uh, I wasn't born into a context where there were initiated elders around and I think probably I had a certain caution about even these this kind of language when it's used by people who look like you and me starting from kind of places we're starting from because it's very easily borrowing language from elsewhere performing a thing that we feel that we lack there's a, always a risk with any of this that we, we're doing battle reenactment whilst telling ourselves we're soldiers. And you know, that's especially the case because in, in old cultures, and you know, this stuff has been around even in countries like 
um, Britain or Sweden much more recently than 6,000 years ago, though you are also right that there is a story that goes all the way back to there that is this kind of dominant story that pushes these things out of the way. But for me, I think a lot of the experiences that I can see in hindsight as initiation didn't come with those labels attached at all. They looked like the first way I ever made a living being as a street musician when I was 17, 18 years old. I spent a year when I was 18 traveling all over Europe with my guitar, earning money by playing music on the street. And that exposes you to a very different set of relationships to the people you're encountering when you're doing that, to the way that money comes into your life and you're able to support yourself, to what is the norm for how people begin to make an economic life for themselves as members of societies like the ones that we grew up in. Also, around that time, I was traveling around by hitchhiking. Now, I hitched for tens of thousands of miles through my teens and my twenties and on afterwards. And I only ever had one bad lift, one really bad lift. And that was when I had started to write an article about things that I'd learned from hitchhiking. And as I was midway through that article, I thunder left and got into the back of this van and there were three guys in the front of the van. And by this stage, I was, I was in my late twenties. I was working as a journalist. I had sat in courtrooms and listened to the witnesses in trials where a situation starts from a group of guys messing around and is beginning to escalate and ends very badly. And I recognized in the dynamic of what was going on with these three men in the front and me in the back, something that reminded me of that. And I was lucky because the traffic got held up. I was able to get out at a gas station and make my way onwards. But I, without necessarily needing to have an answer for who was at the other end of the line, I took that as a call that was giving me a message that maybe I should think twice about encouraging people to go out there and stand at the side of the road getting lifts from strangers. So I need to tell that story in, e in order to even speak about the things that I learned from hitchhiking. But when I arrived at university a year later, having spent that year traveling around Europe, busking and hitching, I was surrounded by lots of people who had grown up with, many of them with more privilege than I had had, and I had no shortage of privilege, who knew lots more about lots of things, who were better connected than I was, Gradually I realized that one thing that very few of them had experienced was the vulnerability of being reliant on strangers and on the kindness of strangers. And that surrender that was involved both in making a living as a street musician and as traveling as a hitchhiker. Probably the next initiation that I had came from working as a door-to-door -door salesman, <laughs> working for this company from somewhere in the deep south, an American company. I was working for them initially in the UK and then in the US. And I was doing this during my summer holidays as a student to earn money so that I could keep up with the lifestyles of my friends who came from better off families. But again, you're putting yourself in a weird place of vulnerability when you're going and knocking on strangers' doors and inviting yourself into their homes. and. Uh, 
I realized that the people who were the trainers in this company came out of this very old school American sales culture. Mm -hmm. They were a very strange hybrid between certain kinds of capitalism and certain kinds of Bible-believing Christianity and certain kinds of what I could only see in hindsight as magic. And it was only much later that I discovered that the whole kind of new thought tradition, which is the backdrop to that mid 20th century, uh, how to win friends and influence people, think your way to getting rich or whatever those books are called. I used to have a bunch of those books. But that came out of a tradition that is a, you know, it's a magical lineage in the 19th century and with roots going further back. Someone like John Michael Greer has written about that history and that made a lot of sense of things in hindsight. So what you're seeing there is three things that absolutely don't come with the label of initiation attached. Mm -hmm. Maybe the fourth one was helping out on the door of a comedy club and watching stand-up comedians performing every Thursday night for a year or two. Watching those guys and those women at the, the top of their form in a club that was a Thursday night club. So it was real comedy fans rather than work parties on a Friday night out. Mm -hmm. And seeing, you know, I came to the conclusion that stand-up comedy is probably the one... The one shamanic tradition that is indigenous to modern, mainly white, mainly urban, Western culture that you know these guys this is not like you know running your shamanic workshop weekend where the people who come want to believe and want this to happen which is part of where the risk of battle reenactment pretending to be soldiers comes from when you're a stand-up and you go onto the stage in front of a good audience I the audience starts with its arms folded going oh man show us what you can do and over those years, I saw, I saw people fail. I saw people succeed. I saw some of them who succeeded the easy ways, the cheap ways, you know, going below the belt. And I saw the real artists of that form who succeed in original and unexpected ways. But whether you succeed the cheap way or the original unexpected way, first thing you have to do is to take the consciousness of that group of people in that audience and bring it together and then you start to ride it and see where you can push it. Just watching people do that and developing an appreciation for that, you know, that was something that had an edge of initiation to it as well. Thank you. So today, Mm. when the urgency of authentic adulthood initiatory processes has reached a pinnacle in reality, if not yet in people's awareness. Mm. How, how can one proceed, both for the initiator, the people whose calling it is to open those doors, to take people to edges, to build bridges to next cultures, you know, empower people learning how to live on the bridge, live with over nothing, which is like hitchhiking. It's like going on stage doing stand up. You know, how 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 do you bring that about? And I don't know I don't necessarily need it from your personal 
sourcing it, but you've been in contact with so many people around the world who, who are totally dedicated to providing the initiation. So you can just talk about that for a while. Yeah. I guess the first person who I worked with and got to know well, who was deeply um, rooted in this kind of work, was Martin Shaw, the storyteller, wilderness rites of passage leader, somebody who stands at a kind of confluence between several powerful traditions as a you know, white English guy working on his own land with stories that come from where he comes from as well as stories that have traveled a long way across the world. And uh, I see people like that who have something like the kind of capacity that would be required to be put in the position of responsibility mm. of leading initiatory work in a living culture. We're not starting from a living culture. We're starting from a very badly damaged place. We're starting from a place where we've been cut off from our traditions. You know, Stephen Jenkinson calls his school the school of orphan wisdom because we've been orphaned from lineages, from traditions, from all of the ways in which we might have started out in this. And so for most of us, you know, there are pockets where there are you know, real schools of deep lineage teaching, but for most of us, we're going to be more like somebody who did a first aid course and finds themselves in the middle of a battlefield and is doing the best they can under circumstances where the fact that you didn't go through medical school is not the barrier it would normally be to carrying out the operations that you're having to carry out. Mm -hmm. You know, I told the story in the session today of the Uzbek storyteller who gave his hat to Alan Garner, my friend, extraordinary novelist and um, extraordinary human being. Um, and Alan says, hey, this guy told him that at the age of eight, he'd been picked out along with two other boys in the village to go and train with the storyteller and live in his household and be part of that life of all of the everyday as the storyteller's apprentices. And at the age of 18, the other two were sent back to an ordinary path as villagers. And this guy stays on as the storyteller's apprentice. And around the time he's 40, he's allowed to tell a story in front of an audience for the first time. And I sometimes wish that I hadn't ever walked out on a stage until I was past 40. <laughs> They hadn't written anything and put it out in public view. There's a wisdom in that. But that's not where we're starting from. You know, there's a reason why so many of the most powerful voices we have talking about something like climate change are coming from children and young people. Because there is a failure, there's an intergenerational failure, and therefore we're not living under circumstances where you can find those teachers and get to spend the first half of your life training in depth in a tradition. We're living in circumstances where, well, my friend Vinay Gupta talks about the ashram that he was part of and how after 9-11 happened, they closed the ashram 
and sent the students out into the world and said, use what you can of what we've trained you. The situation is too urgent for us to stay in the ashram. And that's a version of naming the urgency and therefore the fact that things that would be oh, inappropriate in better times become appropriate because we just have to do the best we can under the circumstances we find ourselves in. Hmm. This is a lot to swallow. Coming from most of us have been at school where there's a curriculum and a plan and the known world to be to be learned about. Mm. And in terms of your vision or the sense you have that, like you, it was Bertrand Russell, who's in, do you know the, the quote that you said? Can you say that about the 10,000? Cultures. Oh, the 10,000 cultures. Now, who was that? So it wasn't, wasn't Bertrand Russell. Um, Wendell Berry. Yes. yes. Wendell Berry. So there's a line where he says, more or less, the only manual that will ever be for Spaceship Earth. It's not going to be a book that could be written by a person or a committee. It's 10,000 living cultures in place. Not 10,000 new cultures. You know, we don't have to birth 10,000 new cultures. We are still sharing the world with a whole patchwork of cultures that have been marginalized or treated as if they were uh, on their way out of existence because of this big story of modernity, the big story in which we are the ones who live closest to the future. But it's there, you know, in pockets, it's there below the radar, even within our societies, even within the orphan wisdom culture that we're, we're born into, the orphan culture. But one thing I think we have to do is practice the work of culture. And you know, part of the work of culture, and I don't know how many different people I've heard this from, but it comes from something that's said in similar ways in different traditions. Children are born, but grown-ups are made. And making grown-ups is the work of culture. So part of the work of culture is helping young people and you know, sometimes not so young people to cross that threshold into responsibility into living in awareness of the consequences, the costs of the ways that we're living. And as I said at the beginning, that's an almost unbearable thing to become aware of, starting from here. The work of culture is also all of the practices and skills by which humans come together to do things without relying on power from above in the form of the ability of the state to tell people what they have to do, whether they like it or not or the ability of the market through our dependence on money in order to meet our most basic needs to compel us to do things that we're doing simply because we're being paid to do them. The only reason that any of us are here is for, because of the capacity that humans have had in so many different times and places to come together and do things for reasons that were far more deeply saturated in meaning and in an awareness of necessity than we end up with when we're dominated by those logics of the market and the state. And so 
finding even small ways to practice doing things that don't make sense to the logic of the market or the state, but which have this quality of coming alive and people coming alive around them. That to me is also part of the work of culture and of this, the work of regrowing a living culture. Part of it, and this is really tricky, is we have to come up with names for things, ways of framing things which would hardly need naming at all or would only be spoken of very indirectly in very poetic ways if we were starting from a less broken place than we're starting from. You know, we need all these clumsy words to start to talk about what we're trying to recover a capacity for. Part of the clumsiness is that the only reason we even need words for them is because of the lack that we're starting from. But I'll give you one example of that practicing other ways of coming together and being human together. One of the projects that I was part of creating that I feel really warmly about is a thing called the West Norwood Feast, which is a community-owned and run street market in a neighborhood in South London. And we worked with this little agency that I started called Spacemakers. We worked with the local authority and with residents and local businesses and created this thing, it's about 12 years ago now. And it's still going. One Sunday a month, this street market festival thing takes over the streets in the center of the neighborhood. And I remember early on during that, being there on a Sunday morning, six o'clock in the morning, and got this lovely photo of these four people who'd met through being involved in the work of organizing the feast with us. We were all there unpaid on a Sunday morning. They all had jobs that they'd been working hard in all week. They're stood there as the sun is coming up in their fluorescent jackets. They've just been putting up market stalls. And I'm like, why? Why are they getting out of bed on a Sunday morning before six o'clock to do this work unpaid? Maybe they always had a burning desire to run a street market. I don't think that's the answer. Mm. I think there's something else going on, something that's harder to name, but that we know it when we see it, we know it when we feel it, and we're drawn towards it. And the street market is providing an excuse for that thing that is harder to name. And there could be a hundred other different activities that would also have provided an excuse for it. The street market just happened to be the right one in that place and time. But there is a magic in what happens when people come together to do things for their own reasons and find joy, it's a word that you used earlier on, in coming together and knowing that this is a space that's not governed by those logics of power and money. This is a space that's governed by something else, where there is curiosity, where there is something that's intrinsically satisfying to us. And for me, the more people who have had experience of being part of spaces that have that quality, the better chance we've got as things continue to unravel and fall apart slowly or rapidly in the times to come, because we need to remember that we are capable of more than we've been told by the schools we went to, the employers we've worked for, the families we grew up in, the governments who have set the frame within which our lives have taken place. 
So create spaces to which it is safe to bring parts of ourselves that might not be welcome or might not be safe in those schools, those workplaces, those families. And through that, we begin to discover that there are exiled capacities. There are things we're capable of that have been hidden from the story of modernity. And I don't promise that that means that there is a happy ending in store, but it means that there's work to be done and that maybe we can begin to imagine what it looks like for there to be an unknown world ahead, a presently unimaginable future beyond the ending of the world as we've known it. Dukal, you are asking us to take back a level of authority that's a radical level of authority and to risk making mistakes. And not only that, but to engage in a kind of undescribable magic, you know, called cavitating, you know, new space, cavitating new space and inhabiting that and inviting friends in and strangers in to explore these maps that we have or to call them to life. And so, how dare you? I love that you used the word Mac. <laughs> that's great. Um, I, that's, I like that word. Um, how dare I? Absolutely. Um, I love the work of a group of artists who worked under the name of Encounters in the UK, including Lucy Neal and Anne-Marie Culhane. And a few years ago, they were doing a thing called The Art of Invitation. And I thought that was such a powerful framing such a needed thing mm -hmm. was more than i mean the art of hosting has done a lot of good for a lot of people but i think we also need the art of invitation and the art of invitation is how do you initiate things without trying to tell people what to do without exercising control mm -hmm. and i think as well as i'm speaking of this of my friend anthony mccann who's an irish philosopher and practitioner who has done a lot of work around gentleness. And we had a conversation years ago about the politics of gentleness. And he has these lovely diagrams that kind of map out the thinking and the practice he's done around this. And in one of them, there's this, um, there's this axis between different kinds of power. Um, and he says, you know, often we often we define power in a way that makes it something we wouldn't want to have. Mm. We define power as the ability to dominate, control, manipulate. And if we don't want to be domineering, controlling, manipulative people, we've just made ourselves powerless. So in the art of invitation, in the finding of a move which sets in motion possibilities without attempting to control outcomes, we begin to get a glimpse of what gentle power looks like. And I think that, you know, the daring is daring to make an invitation. And sometimes the invitation needs to come with warnings. Mm. The way I did when I spoke about how hitchhiking was an initiation for me. And I don't have the full answer to, to this because it is clear to me, you know, reading the work of somebody like Maladoma Somme, who passed recently and who was you know, one of the great um, teachers of all of this in recent times. You know, if you read The Water and the Spirit, 
and that extraordinary comparison of the the kind of the dark initiation of the schooling that he was stolen and put through and then the village initiation that he goes back to now, clearly there is life in the village initiation of a kind that is very different to the controlling torturing forms of the boarding school education. But if you pay attention in that book, you notice that something like 60 young men, most of them aged around 13, go out into the bush at the beginning of the initiations that he writes about parts of. And only about 56 of them come back. Now, I don't know any way in which you or I or anyone watching this today could justify creating initiatory processes for young people that had an attrition rate where you take 60 teenagers out and only 56 come back alive. I couldn't justify suggesting that that is what we need to be headed towards. But I also know that you know, one of the closest things to an initiatory movement that has been born out of modern Western culture is Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program. I work a lot with folks like Felix Marquard who are coming out of the 12-step fellowships and trying to figure out together like, how the teachings and learnings from that extraordinary set of movements might help us on a larger scale. Mm. And you know, I was introduced to Felix by Vanessa Andriotti because I'd said on stage in Paris that I think what we're looking for is something like Alcoholics Anonymous for a whole culture. Mm. And the next year I got a message from Vanessa saying, you have to talk to this guy, Felix, because he's saying the same thing and he's come through recovery, he's in recovery in 12 step. Now the thing that you have in common in that room in recovery is that you don't generally end up at AA or NA or whatever it is without having burnt your life down. Like one way or another, you've burnt your life to the ground by the time you arrive at recovery. And that's why it is a powerful initiatory fellowship. It's a dark, broken version of initiation to get initiated through addiction. It's not something I would wish on anyone, but it's also you know, one of the few spaces in a modern Western context where you can honestly say that everyone in the room has paid the price of entry. And this is something I've talked about with Martin Shaw, and he says, yeah, you know, one of our challenges is that we're so well-trained as consumers, any of us coming out of this culture, however good our intentions, however strong the calling we're feeling, we've been well-trained as consumers and whatever you're offering as a teacher, people are gonna be showing up to consume it and to turn it into a thing to be consumed. Part of Martin's answer is that you know, for so long, the heart of his work has been taking people out onto the land to do the fast in the wilderness. That is one of these things that crops up again and again in different human cultures. And he says, you know, by the fourth day of the fast, your body has begun to consume itself. So that's the price of entry. The price of entry is to be consumed. And one way or another, we have to find the knack, the trick, the hack by which we can trick ourselves and each other out of the consumption mode 
in relation to the things that are being offered in these spaces. And I don't know how far we get with it before the costs become so clear anyway through what is happening in our societies that we begin to arrive at something that looks more like AA for everyone by virtue of how much is in flames around us. And, you know, in some of our countries and some of the places where we're living, things feel pretty close to that already. Though there's a long way further down that things can go as well. And there is work that can be done to soften the fall. These knacks that we've been talking about, I we've been working with this recently and figuring out that these knacks seem to be keys to each person's non-material value. You know, the material world is so ingrained in us that we think that, that the whole city is designed around providing material goods. Mm. And, and yet, it's, it's, we're learning more and more how to use these un, unnameable almost knacks, or un, unnamed heretofore knacks, that are, are natural to us and that are that are unique in a lot of people as providing value like value experience value transformation value possibility value healing value learning value discovery this is far more valuable than money can even pay for and so that creating non-material value and providing that as as the currency as the exchange and this, the material world falling to the wayside. Mm. As of course you need food and clothes and housing and transportation. You know, of course mm. you need that, but that's not the cool stuff. Mm. The cool stuff is this transformation and discovery and that kind of thing. Right. <clears throat> so there's there's something here about different ways of navigating value and transaction has been the dominant um, approach to, to value around here lately and that and very coercive forms of debt you know, some sometimes you read a book that kind of turns bits of your thinking upside down and I think for a lot of us David Graeber's book on debt debt the first 5,000 years was one of those books one of the things that he opened my eyes to was the way that in other times and places, indebtedness has often been a form of relationship, a form of community, especially when you don't seek, you know, because what a transaction does is it cancels out relationship. You know, it's very efficient. It speeds things up because you don't have to care about how the other person involved in the situation feels. I go into Starbucks and I don't have to worry about whether the person behind the counter feels like making me a cup of coffee because I have a bill in my hand that I can give them. That's what money does and that is an extraordinary accelerant of human activity and I wouldn't say that it's uh, a thoroughly bad thing. The question might be whether in the sense that Ivan Illich used to speak about we are some way across the threshold of counterproductivity, 
where something that, to begin with, can be a good thing. It, it, it's helpful. Money can be helpful up to a certain point, but beyond a certain threshold, the same thing becomes not just diminishing returns, but actively negative in its consequences. So I would say that, given that I don't think a major problem in our societies is that we're caring too much about how the other person involved in the situation feels, we might be some way over that threshold at which the extraordinary capacity of money to speed things up by not having to always be caring about how the other person involved feels. It might be somewhere well beyond the threshold where that became counterproductive. But then that takes us towards gift, because that's the other language, the other way, the other logic, one of the other logics through which value, for want, for want of a better word, has been navigated and negotiated between humans and different cultures. And Lewis Hyde wrote a wonderful book on the gift, which um, opens up a lot of that space. But something that was brought home to me quite recently, this again, it came from a conversation with Vanessa Andriotti and Elwood Jimmy, one of her collaborators. From an indigenous perspective, they were pointing out that it has often felt like white folks showed up with a simple binary of either we're doing a cash transaction or it's a gift. And the idea of a gift was like the free gift in a cereal packet. The gift is something you've given me, I don't have to give you any money, it's a gift. So now I can do whatever I want with it. And all of the richness and complexity of what gift has actually meant as a logic operating to bind people together and to make possible different modes of relationship is all cut through by that, uh, that Western idea of the gift as, you gave it to me, it's mine. Mm. It's like Gollum with the ring, it's my precious. <laughs> so we have to be really careful in being attentive to the way that that story is still playing out, like after five centuries. And how do we practice entering into slow relationships of value that are neither uh, a sort of wham, bam, thank you, ma'am transaction, nor gift understood as the no strings attached free gift. How do we value the attachment of strings. How do we value attachment? Mm. You know, mm. psychologists have some helpful stuff to say to us about attachment. Parenting stuff, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do we value strings? Mm. Weaving, braiding. Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about braiding sweetgrass and that extraordinary book of hers where she's braiding together modern scientific knowledge with the indigenous knowledge of the culture that she's an initiated member of. And I, I feel like those kinds of, those kinds of dialogues, those kinds of braidings are something that people have been reaching for, mm. you know, for a, a good while, but often reaching for clumsily, often reaching for in ways that end in damage. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of people who you are speaking with are familiar with Stuart Brand and the work of the Whole Earth Catalogue. And you know, Brand has been an extraordinary kind of trickster character for, gosh, 60 years or whatever now. 
I'm always really struck by the very, very first place where Brand turns up as a public figure, which is in the opening pages of the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. A young Ken Stuart, Kesey. yeah, Ken Kesey, a young Stuart Brand is meeting Ken out of jail, and he's described as wearing an Indian bead necktie over a bare chest and a white butcher's coat with medals from the king of with a medal from the king of Sweden. Now I don't know that anyone has actually decoded that performance, but it's true that butchers wear white coats. But who else are the wearers of white coats? People who work in labs, mm -hmm. scientists. Mm -hmm. What is a medal from the king of Sweden? It's literally what you are given if you're awarded a Nobel Prize. So Brand, aged about 22, is staging this encounter between indigeneity, and this is when he was doing his America Needs Its Indians thing at the happenings in San Francisco in those years. An encounter between that and science. But I don't think that that encounter can work when it's staged by Brand or staged by me. I think the place where it has a chance of working is when we have folks like Robin Wall Kimmerer, like Vanessa Andriotti, like Tyson Junker-Porter, Bio Kamalafe, who are coming from the indigenous side of the encounter. And they're the ones making the invitation because they are the ones who are able to speak the cost of what's really involved mm. if we're gonna get serious. You know, some of Vanessa's colleagues at the University of British Columbia have been working on a project that they call de-arrogantizing STEM, science, what is it, STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. So de-arrogantizing. And that's very close to home for me because I'm not a STEM person, but I've been doing a podcast for the last two and a half years with a friend who started out as a scientist, um, Ed Gillespie, and we call our podcast The Great Humbling because that's our sense of what's, what's being called for, what this moment that sometimes gets called in scientific language, the Anthropocene, what's really at stake, what would be a good name for it? Maybe we should try calling it the humbling. This was the moment where the arrogance of modernity was surrendered, where we got to see our own foolishness, our own uninitiated quality, you know, the sense of being big toddlers. It's how we look to the eyes of many people in other parts of the world. It's not very attractive, but we sort of have to go through seeing that. Like maybe those are the kinds of initiations that are open to us now. Maybe they look more like an experience that is at first humiliating, but that we surrender to enough to allow ourselves to be unburdened of the burden of all that arrogance. Mm. Mm. I feel like we could talk for hours in these domains. I'm so happy to have had this chance to talk to you. I so much appreciate the research you've done and continue to do and your commitment to sharing that with so many people in, in a bold way. And on our way out here, I'm, I'm asking if you could just give some kind of encouragement for these young people and not so young people 
taking this risk of radical career change or stepping out beyond the norm, like taking on these Mac careers that are not even on the tax form and, and working in these domains where that is the currency and, the, and there, there is this gift of ties attached to it and it builds this woven thing. What could you say to encourage us and, and to, to just keep going even when it feels like we're standing on nothing and people disapprove or it's not going so well but it's we still feel the drive you know this like i've got to do this somehow you've got to make a difference what could you say that could really encourage us i feel like maybe one of the kinds of encouragement we need is to see ourselves as part of a much longer story and that can come in different ways sometimes it comes in the form of parenthood. I know when I held my son for the first time that one of the things I felt was a visceral lived sense of my life being a small link in a chain of generations rather than, you know, we've often been told by our culture that you should attempt to make meaning on the scale of a single lifetime. And that's too much weight for any of us to bear in our lifetime. So just that turn, that turn into experiencing the work we're called to, what we're doing as being a small stitch in a big tapestry, mm. rather than having to carry all the weight on our own shoulders. Mm. And there's something also that speaks to the way we come together and talk about climate change, which for me is always in the background of these conversations because I meet a lot of young people who are being brought to a kind of initiatory pass mm. by an encounter with the realities of climate change, with what we know and what we have good grounds to fear about the trouble around and ahead of us. And it's an extraordinary thing that something that is brought to us by science, because climate is always framed for us by the work of science, mm -hmm. is somehow serving as initiatory knowledge to bring people to this threshold and across this threshold of being undone, of being broken and hopefully broken open, and hopefully broken open in ways that have a chance of healing. Now, one of the places where I think that we risk to fall over the line from being broken open with a chance of healing to simply being crushed is when our talk about climate change puts all the weight on those of us who happen to be around just now in these years. And I hear this way of speaking sometimes where people say, the decisions we make, the actions we take in the next few years will determine the future of humanity, the future of the planet. Sometimes people get really excited and go, this is an incredibly exciting time to be alive because of this. I, I'm like, well, let's, let's just be with this a little. Because I think if that message really lands, it's actually a kind of impossible, paralyzing weight to have on our shoulders. I also think that that way of speaking smuggles back in a kind of arrogance gets to be all about us now and for a long time as somebody who speaks to people about climate change and who takes climate change very seriously I struggled with oh 
what to say about this, how to, how to shift the temporality without denying the real urgency of the things we need to be doing or just not doing in the years ahead. And then I heard Tyson Junkerporto speaking about the nature of the work that's called for. And he was saying, look, the best case scenario, let's say, the best case scenario, we're early in the going of an undertaking that will take a thousand years because that's how long it will take to have a world of old growth forests again, because that's how long it takes the mother trees to grow. And for me, there's something quieting and humbling about sitting with the idea that, you know, the work that we're called to, the risks we're taking, the tasks we're stepping into, are one small chapter in a much longer story, which none of us are going to live to see the end of. And there's also an invitation there to see what we are capable of as humans, as more than what we've been doing around here lately. To see that we can be and have been and could be again creatures that bring forests to life rather than just creatures that destroy forests. And so that would be the encouragement that I would give. There are lots of kinds of forests. There are forests of culture as well as forests of nature. And part of what we need to do is just lose this binary between nature and culture anyway. But in one way or another, be planting trees, be part of the work of growing forests that you will not live to see and experience the work you're doing and the struggles that will come as part of taking on that work as part of something much larger, the significance of which will only become apparent in myself. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you.